You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Ramesh Ganaharati, and with me today is Danny Ilazi, a PhD candidate at Dublin City University. And with him, I will be discussing the EU's role in state building in the Western Balkans, particularly in Kosovo. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via Dublin LPR or on our website, dublinlpr.ie. The podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio, Navi Mumbai, and Galway's Flirt FM. So Danny, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Ramesh. It's a, a real pleasure to have this. Uh, this would be my first podcast ever, so <laughs> hopefully, yeah, it will go well. Amazing. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. So could you, for the benefit of our audience who may not be very familiar with the whole topic, could you briefly introduce what your research is on? So basically, my research goes back to also my, my master's studies in the whole post-conflict state-building interventions. Uh, which really escalated in the 1990s, where the UN evolved its traditional approaches to responding to conflict management and peacekeeping to working in, in rebuilding states that were torn apart from the conflict. So my research is in this overall framework of, of post-conflict peace building, state building. So I'm looking at how the EU is doing that. The EU has been for, for many years now an aspiring global or emerging global actor, although it has all these difficulties because it's EU, then you have member states of the EU like Germany who hold their own, in a way, global relevance and, and agency. So I'm looking at how the EU is exercising agency in state building process in Kosovo, focusing on everyday practices. So looking at actors and, and elements, aspects of state building that would be considered mundane but that I will, I argue, carry an important agency, but also are important sites for us to better understand how the EU actually does the state building intervention. Okay. And could you give a couple of examples of what you mean by everyday practices? So, for example, much of the studies into how these post-conflict state building interventions have happened focus on institutional, well-established practices. In a way, they look at, for example, one issue that is widely problematized in the current scholarship considering post-conflict state building is the issue of local ownership. In most of the literature, this problem is examined through the perspective of, in a way, examining official policy documents of, let's say, UN and the local actors' approaches. And while this is important and, and provides important insight into understanding why you know, it seems to be an inherent problem of state building interventions uh, with local ownership. It misses nuances of the process, you know, aspects you might consider mundane. For example, an international actor or a policymaker that is working with the UN going on a regular basis to have coffee with a village leader. This would not register in the more traditional or more established means of researching state building interventions. This would not register as a 
as, let's say, uh, something worth examining. And so I look how, let's say, something like that uh, helps create alternative, non-traditional ways of how local actors and international actors interact and create synergy or hybrid solutions to state-building interventions. And why this is an important is because from the 90s, when the state-building intervention escalated, the argument is that it has a liberal Western bias in the way how international communities saw as a solution to a country or a society that just finished war or a conflict. And usually they would go with ready-made templates to, you know, install, if it were. So there is a bit of an industrial approach, technocratic approach to, to it. Ignoring local context, ignoring the experience of the society. And so the idea of this approach, so-called liberal peace-building or liberal democracy approach, is that the surest foundations of sustainable peace and preventing relapse to conflict is creating the barbarian-style institutions, a democracy, elections, civil society, and all of that. And so we see that these kind of approaches you know, they sound very good in paper, but the way they are introduced, the way they are implemented, uh, you know, they carry sometimes unintended consequences, as Gazin Visoka would call it in, in his book. But, and some of these consequences are that it undermines local agency. It creates sometimes a deeper gap in the center-periphery relationship, where we see these institutions only serving or having the highest potential in the capital. For example, with civil society, we see that there is a bias there of funding um, organizations that carry out the agenda of the international community and not necessarily bring forward different ideas. And then the other cities outside the capital often are ignored. This is not just a problem that has been identified in the 1990s approaches to state building intervention. We see this now also a problem today, even though there's many studies that show that this is not the way, the way to go, that you need to work. Uh, not to uh, write ideas about projects in capitals elsewhere and then bringing them ready-made to a country you're saying you're supporting to democratize or modernize or build peace. Uh, but you need to listen to the local vendors. Roger McGinty, which is one of the important scholars that, that has brought important attention to, to the everyday, he also is running this project called Everyday Peace Indicators, where he also highlights how, for example, what international community sees as a security problem. There is a bias there. You know, if you're going to a, a, a village, you're thinking we need to build bridges or roads or things like that. But for the local community, key security concern can be something as mundane as, let's say, not having access to sanitary infrastructure. The everyday is all about bringing a new perspective to what is uh, threatening democracy or democratic values or, or peace in a society, and also a different perspective on how to respond on how to build states uh, after the conflict. And Kosovo is the perfect example to examine this because we have been and still are to a certain degree under a state-building process since 1999. And the footprint that UN had in Kosovo is by far the most significant because it wasn't just rebuilding state institutions in our case. It was building everything, a state basically from bottom up. Because when UN came in 99, we had about 10 years of 
opposing the uh, structures or the state institutions that were in place because of an apartheid-like system that Milosevic had introduced in 1989 in Kosovo. Well, based on my understanding is one of the issues clearly seems that with regards to all these policies of intervention is that the question of local agency is left blank. And then that goes to my next question is, why the EU? How is the EU involved? So this is another reason why Kosovo is such an important case study, because also for the EU, it represents the first case where it actually not only took over state building intervention role, in our case, took it over from UN, but also was embedded in our own institutions, playing the role of a state uh, more than helping create a state. And when we look at the EU, the EU has been involved in these uh, peace-building interventions or state-building interventions as part of the UN, and it has traditionally supported them. But EU approaches to peace-building, and this is uh, in line also with, with, with the work of, of Richmond, Bjorkdal, and Kapler, who examined this emerging peace-building framework of the EU, you see that it was more of a res- evolving response. So traditionally, EU was part of the UN, but as it grew its agency, internally, it also grew its ambitions globally to have its, if you can say, its own model of peace building or state building approaches. But we see, you know, the peace building approaches of the EU cannot be seen as like original framework created, but more of evolving practices of the EU. And this is also tied with the case of the Western Balkans. One of the reasons why today we have a greater cooperation among EU member states on foreign and security policies is exactly because of the Western Balkans and the wars that happened in 1990s, because EU realized that it did not react in timely manner, it sent mixed messages, and the failure of the EU to react to what was happening in our region could be also seen as part of the reason that the conflict escalated to the extent they, they did. So the region for the EU is very significant. And then we have the St. Malo uh, summit, uh, a Franco-British agreement to to work more closely on this idea of having uh, a common foreign and security policies in place. And that's when the EU also started to develop its own capabilities and also capacities to create uh, or to implement state building interventions. And in Kosovo, Uh, The EU took this responsibility from the UN in uh, 2008, and the unique thing about EU approaches was, as I said, the EU was not only seen as an external actor involved in a state-building intervention, but it became part of the system with the European rule of law mission, so-called ULEX. You know, the conviction in the EU was that we don't trust the local institutions to be professional and independent enough to fight corruption, organized crime, and war crimes. So we're going to create a a rule of law mission that will have executive mandate to prosecute and judge cases. And they they, they came in, but and they set this expectation high from the start. Kosovo, uh, civil society, and, and citizens in general agree corruption, organized crime are a problem. And they were hoping EU was bringing that European justice. This, this was their intention. Uh, but at the end, uh, a, a report by the EU, EU's Court of Auditors found that the, the mission failed significantly in delivering on its mandate. 
And the report even says that no one expected the EU to do a miracle, but at least to create some kind of foundation, some kind of capacity. So my country, Kosovo, it's an important case study to see this kind of uh, um, how in EU implemented in practice state building intervention, but also to see the key shortcomings. And now why EU is doing all of this is because EU sees itself, uh, and this has been widely, you know, it's widely mentioned in literature, it sees itself as a peace building project. And the, but the way it sees building peace in other parts is by expanding its own self. And this is also part of what Gazin Visoka and John Doyle also argued about the neo functional approaches of peace building on the part of you that they try to copy their own internal models of resolving problems to other countries. And so the Western Balkans is part of the enlargement policy of the EU. And so for the EU having peace in the countries that are not part of the EU, but are, are in a sense either close to EU or within proximity of the EU, uh, then it sees itself as a threat, but also as creating instability. And this was in 2015 and, and, and 16 with the migration crisis, this became very clear that we are an interconnected, interdependent world, that events happening in, in different parts of the world, they will affect you as well. And so I think the EU has this idea of intervening uh, in state building in order to ensure that there is stability. Some scholars call EU's approaches helping heal ailing states. So there is this other idea that for the EU, if there are states that are in a way ailing, that they would intervene to make sure that they're stable and they can take care of their own citizens. And key to EU is this normative background. And so they're going in with the idea of we are bringing no, uh, you know, a set of norms. We are leading by example. And so part of what I'm researching is to see what the everyday also tells us about how ethical and normative active the EU actually is. So I'm asking who actually constitutes EU to the local actors in this everyday economy? Who is EU? And then the results are rather surprising. I see that in the everyday setting, what constitutes EU, it's not per se officials. There are a lot of subcontracted experts who are working with the local institutions. They represent the EU. And then the EU is saying we are bringing best practices from our country, as I said, this new functional approach. And I'm looking how that happens in practice. And we see that the EU doesn't have a system how to determine, let's say, in Kosovo, in a particular problem, what would be appropriate best practice? And how this is defined, in fact, is very, you know, improvised approach by the leading expert helping the government in that particular case. If the person is, let's say, from Slovenia, then the law that the government is going to develop on that particular issue will be Slovenian model. This doesn't mean Slovenian model is bad practice. It just also doesn't mean that there was some kind of feasibility study to make sure that the Slovenian model was the best uh, solution to, to Kosovo issues. And then what you have is government approving laws and then going back after a year or two to revise those laws. Because when they started to implement in practice, they saw that they didn't work as well as they thought. So then there is the lack of coordination in practice between different EU projects helping this policy making. There's a lot of loss of money here and confidence in the EU among some local actors that it knows what it's doing. Uh, but I guess it's a learning process for the EU too. <laughs> yes. So it seems to me that there is 
a mismatch in terms of the whole ideal, like as you said, the normative ideal of the EU building institutions, but then on, on the implementation that it becomes very fuzzy and contradictory because again, the EU is not one body and thus there is this mismatch. You touched upon this briefly, but could you elaborate further on how do you deal with this? How do local actors respond to this when you end up having, pieces, for example, pieces of legislation that don't match up? This is the fundamental issue on how to respond. So during my research, I was um, told by one of our government officials who was working on a EU-funded project in anti-corruption field. And he said that although we went to the EU and told them all the time, that the project and the team are not doing things that are relevant to the process or that we need to, that the EU wouldn't respond, unfortunately, to their request. They would wait until the project is implemented and then, you know, make sure that maybe they don't get another contract or project doesn't continue. But unless the project does something scandalous that becomes like a big scandal they cannot ignore. But usually the local actors do feel neglected in terms of having influence in the EU when it comes to EU-funded projects. But there is a positive other aspect, for example, also on anti-corruption issues. I saw that sometimes in this everyday aspect is that anti-corruption institutions that were independent from the government, they would often go to the EU to secure support in pushing the government to make a right decision on a particular issue. And in this case, the EU would fully go behind these independent institutions. You know, a particular case that came out from my research was a director of an independent institution was not having access. The government was not allowing this person access to a particular law that was affecting the work of the institution that this person was running. So then he goes to the EU office and says, the government is not giving me the law. And then the, the EU gives him the law. So this is like you would say a mundane aspect. But then because of this very rudimentary, in a sense, practice of just EU handing over the copy that the government gave, the institution was able to make analysis and then alert the EU that some of the elements that the law was introducing would hinder or were detrimental to principle of transparency. And you being a normative actor, in these cases, it takes the issue and makes a public case and forces the government basically to uh, rescind the law and make the necessary changes. So there are very positive examples on this aspect, but in terms of overall, how to um, improve this? It seems to me that a key issue is in the dialogue that the EU conducts with the local actors. From EU perspective, although the language we read in the statements is that they are equal, in practice, uh, the EU does not see you know, local actor where it is implementing an, a state building project that equal. It tends to not trust their input. Sometimes this relationship is also fed by local actors who are afraid to come out with proposals because they would be afraid being portrayed as being anti-EU. So there is no culture of framing proposals or criticism to a particular EU position in a sense that it is not seen as you being anti-EU, but is simply seen as a constructive normal dialogue. You suggest something. I respond with maybe a better idea. And, in, you know, and if, if you're suggesting to do a policy in a country where I, I, I work, maybe you should also have confidence in my own experience in that aspect. 
but it seems the EU, maybe for the right reasons, uh, some would argue with an EU, that they don't have the necessary confidence to treat the local partners as equals. And this would go like to say in some forums between the local government and the EU, uh, you would have, let's say, a statement saying these are joint conclusions between the EU and the government. But in reality, those conclusions were written by the EU and were sent to the government to comment. The government usually doesn't comment, but if it comments something, they would respect maybe one or two, two but, but it would end up being content controlled by the EU. This doesn't mean that what they're saying in those conclusions is not right. It just means that they are controlling the conversation and the content of this dialogue with local actors. So there needs to be more trust building mechanisms within the EU in engaging local actors, I would say, and also less reliance of the EU on subcontracted experts. And when you're relying on them, uh, because you cannot, uh, this is normal, it's nothing irregular about engaging consultancy companies or, or expertise in the process. Everyone does this and it's necessary. You don't have capacities as an organization, but you need to have also a system in place to ensure that the input that those experts are providing actually matches the local context and not just, you know, bringing templates from other EU countries. And, you know, one of the findings of, of my research is that sometimes you seems to maintain the sense a weak or ailing state so that it can justify the extent and level of involvement with, with that state. And how it creates this just, you know, this situation is exactly by, you know, it's an EU project that funded development of a law on a particular policy. After five years, the conclusion is, maybe go back just to illustrate process of, with agencies, which was a very interesting for me. At certain point, the EU was recommending to government to decentralize institutions, create agencies on particular issues. The government was responding to that. And then at certain point, someone said, well, I think the process of agencification, as they call it, has maybe gone out of control. Then they do a report that says, okay, the genesis of the problem were in those recommendations to create agencies for this issue. Then now the problem is that you have too many agencies. So again, the problem always seems to be with the local actors. You know, there isn't that honest conversation that, okay, we have maybe gone too far with agencies. And then what happened when the government started to rationalize agencies is that you can see there's different interests. Some agencies had some EU projects working for them that had carried influence with the EU office in the country. And then they would go in and lobby the EU office to remove that agency from the list. So then if the EU says you need to remove a particular agency from the list or change the way it would be rationalized, then this would create a, you know, a precedent for the local actors as well to say, okay, then if you can pick agencies from the list, we would as well. Because rationalization, politically speaking, carries impact for the decision makers because it would mean maybe people out of job. I elaborate more on my research, but this is like a case when then the whole reform aspect that is being pushed by the EU is undermined and it is prevented. So yeah. in a way, kind of to wrap up, ultimately, it seems to me is that there are a number of issues, of course, but among the top of them, it seems that firstly is that the EU does not seem to have found the middle ground 
of putting its own agenda, but also again, listening to the local actors and responding to the local actors. It's still, it's in that EU is still learning this and has been learning since it took over from the UN, but it's been 12 years now. Shouldn't yes. the US, EU have got it thing together? Yeah, that's the other thing that, you know, it, it should have. And, and I think part of the reason, because I am, I like EU, <laughs> like from a very personal, um, I think EU is a good project. But I think what is preventing EU from learning from its process and approaches are also member states. And also in the case of Kosovo, we saw that at a certain point in 2011, the UN trusted the EU, not member states, EU to lead a process of normalization of relations between Serbia and Kosovo. And EU was doing it. It started with low-hanging fruit, so-called, you know, like trying to find solutions that are not very controversial to reach uh, solutions and, you know, build spillover effect on bigger political issues that prevent normal relations between Kosovo and Serbia, which is mainly that Serbia doesn't recognize Kosovo as an independent state. And at certain point, it seemed EU was ready to strike a deal. I mean, this is still on allegedly and it was never confirmed. But member states like Germany did not like the kind of solution that EU was apparently condoning to be the final compromise between Kosovo and Serbia, which involved a certain element of border correction. And then they intervened. Now, I'm not saying that the, this was a good idea for the final agreement between Kosovo and Serbia, but I'm, what I'm saying is that although the member states had trusted the EU with a particular process, they still retained their, in a way, right and intervened at the moment when they didn't think that what the EU was doing was right from their point of, of view. And so what this did in practice is it ruined the reputation of the European Union. And also member states are preventing EU to deliver on promises. For example, for us as Kosovars, it's the visa liberalization issue. We have done so many reforms in the country under the promise that if we do those things, EU would uh, vote on visa liberalization. The European Commission was the face of EU to, to the government. And when all of those were done and European Commission said the country has fulfilled all these conditions, you have member states like France and Netherlands saying, oh no, we have our own conditions. We actually, what they said is even more outrageous in my opinion. They said, we don't trust the assessment of the European Commission. So imagine now, how I would feel as, not I in this case, but I mean general citizens or civil society. So the message they're sending is very negative because if you know member states don't trust their own commission, why should people in Kosovo then trust that what they are proposing is going to bring progress in European accession or, or it's good thing? So you know the message they sends to people who are promoting uh, European integration is just devastating in practice. And it cripples the European Commission, which is the face of the EU in reality in most countries, to do its job. You cannot have, like to me, it seems a bit of hypocrisy to say the European Commission is not delivering on transformation or reforms in these countries, and at the same time, taking away from the European Commission the most effective tool at their disposal to ensure these reforms, which is carrot and stick approach. So the, the carrot, in this case, um, progress in the accession process. But this is a greater problem within the EU, you know, with the growing influence of the far right parties. It's, I think, a big, you know, the whole European integration project seems to be experiencing a crisis. 
you know, we thought Brexit was unthinkable, but Brexit happens. What if tomorrow the Front National in France comes to power? What would then happen to the European integration? So there's a lot of, I think, unknown unknowns in a sense as we move forward, but the EU needs to have this debate. It seems it has forgotten why it was important in the first place to have this project and why it is valuable to all the countries in Europe as a continent. So on that note, I would like to thank Danny for going into the role of the EU in state building in Kosovo. And also I would like to thank our listeners for joining the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions, and suggestions are very welcome via contact at dublinlpr.ie. This was Ramesh Kanaharati, and I wish you a pleasant day. Thank you.